Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. This is the second episode of a two-part series of Leaders of Analytics featuring global data science thought leader and influencer Felipe Flores. In this episode, we discuss Felipe's work at Honeysuckle Health, what Honeysuckle Health does, and why the company was founded by two very large insurance organizations, how data-driven personalized healthcare works in practice and the typical outcomes patients see, how data will be used to drive positive health outcomes in the future, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Felipe. Okay, Felipe, we are back for part two of a very exciting interview series here because last time we talked so much that we didn't get to cover everything that we wanted. So that's it. Well, thanks so much. You're most welcome. We heard about your ascent from a backpacker with poor English to a data science executive with perfect English and your whole journey throughout that. We heard about data-driven leadership and uh, you had lots of sage advice to listeners out there about what to do and what not to do. One of the things we didn't capture is what you actually do day to day. You're very much a practitioner in this space and you are uh, one of the executives at what is called Honeysuckle Health. I'm very interested to learn about Honeysuckle Health and what you do there, and I'm sure listeners are. So could you tell us about your role there and, and what you do and, and what the company does as well? Yeah, happy, happy to. And thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me back, mate. Yeah, always a pleasure spending time with you. And yeah, very keen to discuss this side as well. And, and thank you so much for the kind remarks. Very, very generous. So thank you. Thank you so much. So before working in Honeysuckle Health, I'd been in banking and finance for about five years, and I found the challenges super interesting. Uh, the applications for AI were almost endless. The data sets were extremely rich. It's an industry that's it's one of the areas that have overall sort of higher maturity compared to other industries like health and many others. I think uh, banking and finance are, are a little bit ahead there. But the whole time that I was, that I was in banking and finance or maybe not the whole time, but increasingly over time, I felt like we were using this amazing technology to sell people money. And it got to a point where it felt like it was like trying to find people online and say, do you want some money? Would you like, would you like my, <laughs> how much money would you like? Would you like more money? And I was like, like enjoying the technical side, but but over time I wanted to to move into something different, something that ideally was more purpose driven. And in thinking about where that could be, and you know that's one of the beauties of working in in data science that you can move across industries 
quite freely. And yeah, like I have friends who work either in mining and not as data scientists, but work in, in mining or in power generation. And those are sort of older school careers that are stuck, generally stuck in one track unless you retrain. But we're so lucky that we're able to change industries. So in thinking about what type of industry I would like to go into next, uh, healthcare came up as one of the main ones where it felt like it was prime for disruption. Um, both through digital technologies and, and AI specifically. And it felt like something was was bubbling up in AI. This is a couple of years ago, so in 2019. As I, as I started to think about it, I, uh, I'd been living in Melbourne at the time for about 12 years, and I love Melbourne. It feels like home in Australia. I was getting to a point where the, the cold was getting to me and I wanted to move somewhere with a warmer weather, close to the beach, and have a better lifestyle in terms of like a smaller place. And that was mostly for family reasons so kind of like multiple multiple things that led to change and I was lucky enough to come across the opportunity at Honeysuckle Health through an old colleague of mine that she was a a main stakeholder in the past so we worked together she was head of marketing and I was head of data science at the beginning the relationship was quite difficult and she was a person that was not very data driven she felt like you know the CEO had almost like forced this data analytics stuff into her domain and then suddenly like I was there and they were like you guys work it out I remember like finding it so challenging at the beginning and it was one of the relationships that I really invested and like I remember for for one of the main projects that we got off the ground in her area that ended up increasing conversion rates by about 30 percent which was like a huge huge effect on the on the business I remember to get that off the ground I probably spent, I remember quantifying it for the team, like I probably spent like 600 hours working with the stakeholder and like with other people, but like where this stakeholder was involved, 600 hours of the work to get this initiative off the ground. And that meant like ideating, socializing, getting people comfortable, working through it and et cetera. And in the end was, was a success. And anyway, all I'm saying there is that I personally haven't always been so deliberate about investing in stakeholder relationships and I think I think most people in our industry sometimes we're like oh you know stakeholders are a pain in the ass or stakeholders this or stakeholders that and sometimes like if you double down and invest it pays off professionally and personally so with this stakeholder we became friends and then like years later I mentioned like we caught up and I mentioned that I wanted to move into healthcare and uh, I'm moving looking for a seat change and she was like you know what I've got a friend we went to primary school together. He's setting up a new business in the healthcare space and they're looking for a head of data science right now. Like I saw him on the weekend and we caught up on the Monday. Like amazing, amazing, amazing coincidence. So literally we're catching up for lunch. Uh, she tells me this. She's like, do you want me to send him your CV? Yes. She texts him my LinkedIn. Before we finish lunch, he's like, book him in for an interview. And a couple of weeks later, I was here in Newcastle, did the interview, I got the gig, and came back the next month to interview people for, for my team. And a couple of months later, I was here when I joined this healthcare company. I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a second. Uh, but when I joined, I was employee number eight based on when I started. And now we're over 100 and it's been two years, just over two years. The growth has been has been awesome. It's been really, really exciting. In, in the, the company, what we're trying to do is help people live healthier lives. And the, the focus there is smack bang in healthcare. 
um, both on the preventative health side, so primary health and the wellness area on how do you get people to either stay healthy or be a little bit healthier over time. And then we've moved into secondary and, sort of, and tertiary healthcare, which is around like hospital, doing work with hospitals, analyzing data from surgeries, clinical practices, quality of healthcare, what is the value of healthcare are all things that we're measuring and are working with different partners across the industry to help feed back some of this some of this data where in some cases at least in Australia for the partners that we work with in some cases like it's never been looked at before in other cases like the data hasn't been aggregated at a at an industry level so it's been difficult to get benchmarks and in other cases the depth hasn't been there and a little big part of this change is assisted by a big change in strategy that we're seeing from health insurance in Australia, where uh, traditionally health insurers have been payers. And in the words of some of them, they feel like they were dumb payers, like essentially like if things came, came in, they would pay the bill. And a large number of health insurers, they wanted to change their strategy to move from a healthcare payer to a healthcare partner. And that means getting a lot closer with the members, with the individuals, and understanding their health needs and their health journey a lot better and be able to provide recommendations. That's where Honeysuckle Health sits and where we can help. So our mission is to help people live healthier lives. The way that we're, that we're doing that, at least in my mind, from a, from a data science perspective, it's almost like taking the playbook of the big tech companies in the US and what they did to advertising, which is obviously like bad, but taking those learnings and applying it to healthcare, but for good. So what I mean by that is like takes aspects of personalization, of finding people at the right time and offering them a message that will motivate them to action. And in this case, the action is not buy something, but an action is like develop a, a better habit or like do some exercise or like go see this particular physician or get this type of treatment. So like the personalized recommendations delivered to people at the right time with a big focus on the preventative side. Over time, we'll be spending more and more of our data science efforts on the behavioral science component and how to speak to and motivate different people differently to get better health outcomes, which we measure and obviously feedback to all our, all our models. It's super early days to do this in, in healthcare. There's a number of very large challenges that need to be overcome. And we, as an executive team, we discussed these openly before everyone joined. And we sort of said, like, this is going to take a long time. We kind of agreed to give it about 10 years and see where we get to. And that was that was really nice because at least from a data perspective, the main challenge is the way that I see it is there's a lot of data that needs to be captured in order to support everything else that we want to do. There's a lot of connections that need to be created within the industry. So that could be like GPs and health insurers and specialists and get sort of data flowing, especially like measurement and outcome data. But there's a lot of linking and connections that need to be created. And then overall, there's a big optimization piece that needs to be done in order to help people find and have better pathways to better health. And what I mean when I say uh, a pathway is that in healthcare, it's quite a, an 
obfuscated market that in the sense that like there's not a lot of price transparency uh, up front there's not a lot of transparency about outcomes and what similar people have gotten as a result from a different from a particular doctor or specialist and the the, the treatment so we're like collecting all that data and helping optimize the adventure that people go when they interact with the healthcare system if you think of it as like choose your own adventure and everyone goes to different paths and the, the last thing I'll say here is that I'm particularly excited by that because the majority of the applications of AI in healthcare have been about diagnostics and primarily computer vision and imaging. So it's been like taking x-rays or uh, brain scans and doing the diagnosis or what conditions. And there's fantastic companies doing excellent work in that space. And I think that that's the area of AI in healthcare that gets the majority of the attention because that's where you can apply a lot of the cool algorithms, the cool deep learning algorithms, you can apply them readily to that space. But on the other extreme, there's companies like Honeysuckle Health where we're taking this broader view of the patient journey and having a person-centric approach and looking at their entire adventure and the choose your own adventure and wanting to optimize that for people in a way that's evidence-based and whether the data has been captured, linked, and then the recommendation and then optimized, like the journey being optimized with personalized recommendations and then a bit of behavioral science. That's where we're hoping to go. It's going to be a long journey. We're right at the start. We've had a few little wins, a lot of setbacks, a lot of big challenges, and there's more yet to come. But I definitely feel like it's got a lot of what I was looking for in terms of a more purposeful application of analytics and AI. And that's made it a really, really great journey. Brilliant. Oh, there's so many questions I want to ask you now after that long explanation. Thank you for that, Felipe. I should say one of the things that listeners might have picked up on is that it can actually get cold in Australia. You mentioned that Melbourne is cold. Most of Australia is typically scorching hot, but we do also get cold parts in winter and we don't all ride the kangaroos to work either. So uh, that's another <laughs> another myth busted there. So for all you international listeners, that, that's how it is here. Now, Felipe, I'm hearing sort of a few types of projects in, in what you do. There is some that I would call maybe traditional analytics consulting as in you take a data set, you find some patterns and you sort of report back the insights and and they can be used to make more strategic decisions. Uh, But it also sounds like there is stuff that is really in the nitty gritty of, uh, you say personalization, right? So that necessarily means that you have to pick some really key points in a uh, customer client journey and and optimize for those and, and really analyze them from all angles and work with with the subject matter experts right in the front line to really figure out what's going on. And it, it, there's a gamification element too in the whole prevention piece, right? Because you've got to motivate people to get off the couch and go running or stop smoking or whatever the, the, the levers are that you're pulling. Two questions from me before many other questions. Where are you getting this data from? And how are you interacting with, with sort of the frontline professionals, maybe carers and so on that aren't directly uh, in your organization, but you're going through another organization to get that? How are you developing these things on the ground? Awesome questions, right? So on the data side, the data comes from our partners and we're, we're taking a, an ecosystem approach to the improvements that we would like to see in the healthcare industry. So that means that we have started by working with what we're calling the coalition of the willing. So we went and knocked on a lot of doors and said like what we, our vision and what we would like to see as changes in the, in the industry. And we got a lot of doors closed in our face. And then we got some 
that invited us in to have more of a chat. And we realized that that's just a starting point and kind of like the first pass, but we're, we're working with this coalition of the willing and uh, all the data that we get is from third parties. Oh, the majority of the data, sorry, I should say that we do offer some support programs directly to members that we, that we, and uh, to patients that we get paid for from the insurers. So then it's free for the patients. And that was one of the early pieces of advice from our parent companies that they said, don't just be a data science company, but have some arms and legs that can help you execute on the recommendations. Because customers, like being organizations, they'll want to buy the inside the recommendation and the service on how to capture that value. And it was fantastic advice. So we got a couple, we got two other divisions or business lines that help us do that. So we have the brain and the AI and then the arms and legs to help us make that happen. But the data side, largely on partnerships. And as you can imagine in healthcare, a lot of privacy, a lot of information security, a lot of the identification. And we've done a lot of a lot of work to get that to a top-notch standard. And, and coming from, from banking was uh, surprisingly helpful in that side. And then when it comes to the recommendations, and I guess the, the link between the data and the recommendations there is that today, a lot of the data that's required to not only provide personalized recommendations, but also to do it in, in a responsible and ethical way is not available. So we're having to capture a lot of it. And last week when uh, you and I were at the Advancing AI Melbourne conference, and when we had the panel on AI ethics, one of the panelists, Janine, she mentioned this case on about healthcare in the US where a company made a predictive model to estimate the benefit that different people were going to get from a particular intervention. And that benefit was being predicted from a financial perspective used as a proxy of healthcare benefits to essentially say... If I was going to get $600 worth of benefit from this program and you were going to get $100 from benefit, then the program should be offered to me first before you. Later, when you think about it in the first line, it sounds good. But then what was found later on was that that algorithm was discriminating, inadvertently discriminating against lower socioeconomic people because they hadn't spent as much on healthcare. So then there wasn't as much to save compared to, to people that could spend more. So that kind of like hit the news and made everyone very, very afraid. And one of the things that, that I realized after that is like, today we don't have the, the data to do a better job. So yes, we're using finances, which is terrible proxy, but we do have to capture a lot of new data in order to about people's health and their behaviors and their lifestyle and even their emotions and mental health. We need to capture a lot more data in order to be able to provide people better recommendations and better value. And then the way to do that is your other point around working with the doctor community, the clinicians, sorry, the nurses, the, the humans, essentially, that are treating the patients. And to date, all, pretty much all of the work that we've done, if not all of it, has been with a human in the loop. And that human in the loop is a clinician that is, you know, interacting with our analytics or AI, also with our technology. And then they're making kind of like the final decision to pass that recommendation or a different recommendation to the patient that they have in front of them. And that's great feedback for our systems as well. So like we totally welcome it. And your other point around how do you 
get people in other organizations to want to take part of these changes. And like, it's super hard. <laughs> it's super hard where um, healthcare is a super fragmented market and everyone has different incentives. And so everyone wants different things and to be able to get them, get, get a particular group of people, say it can be like orthopedic surgeons or, or general practitioners, like family doctors. If you want GPs or family doctors to be part of this coalition of the willing, you have to understand deeply what they care about, what they value, what their world is like, and then build some, generally some technology, some analytics and some AI to cater for them. And that'll be different to, the orthopedic surgeons and the nurses and the insurance companies, like everyone will have different and has different needs and having that kind of like deep product development at such a specialized level across an ecosystem has been particularly challenging. So we have some initiatives that are at a very early pilot stage. And then we have some initiatives that are more mature, nothing super mature, but things that are improving and lots of ideas that are still yet to come when we get the kind of like the right partners to make it make it work. But for example, we've been linking GPs, so family doctors with health insurers. So then the health insurer, everyone's health insurer in Australia typically offers a number of support programs for free to their members and the members don't know about it. And the insurer is unsure of who should get what program. So one of the services that we do for the insurers is like let our models tell them who should get each individual program and when, and that's that's been helpful. But the data that we're using there is it's claims data, so it's largely payments data. So we're doing that as, as one avenue. But on the other side, we have software that GPs are using that shows them the support programs that are available to the patient that is sitting in front of them. And then they get a quick description and the GP is able to offer and refer the, those programs straight to the patient sitting in front of them and they can enroll them in these programs. And then the GP gets feedback about how the patient is going on those support programs. And they're an additional to the care that they're getting so far, like from the GP and specialists and anyone else that is in their care team. And having that information at their fingertips, that two-way communication, and then some measurable outcomes being fed back to the GPs are ways that we're making progress on that on that side. But there's still, across the industry, there's many, many areas that are yet to come. Your data collection exercise is massively complex and multifaceted. And what I'm imagining here is this is really a, I don't know, 10-year journey to really get a good data set here. This is going to take a long time because it's very fragmented, but also we all know the joke of doctor's handwriting being terrible and all that stuff. But sometimes that's actually where, where you're starting, right? They might be writing handwritten notes or, or quick things that they print out and give you as a referral for the next thing. And that's sort of the standard of, of technological advancement in these practices. So I imagine that you're actually having to build workflows and software and, and systems to actually make it so easy for people to capture data that they almost want to do it without actually, uh, as, as in it's almost easier to do that than what they did before. And you kind of have to flip it around to be the, the customer experience of the doctor in, in that sense. So you can tell me whether that's right or wrong. Spot on. What I'm also interested in here is for listeners to understand Honeysuckle Health is not just your average startup. You've got some financial, technological, and IP firepower behind you to actually do this and play this long game. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you're constructed and, and ownership and all that stuff as well. 
Yeah, no, that sounds great. So to your first point around getting the, the user engagement, and in this case, our, our users are largely doctors and insurers, basically, and then a bit, bit of government work. But to get the, the users engaged, then it needs to be a process that's a lot more seamless than what they had before, where we're reducing friction, being able to pre-populate a lot of information as much as we can and making it a couple of clicks instead of a form, for example. And for that, we've done a lot of integration with different government agencies that has helped us do a lot of that heavy lifting. And now we're still like capturing a lot of data, uh, but doing a lot of technological development in, in sort of apps and, and connectivity to be able to link the different parts of the healthcare system and bring them together and get that information flowing with obviously a bit of analytics and AI behind the scenes. And then to your other point around Honeysuckle Health, so the company started at the beginning of 2020. So in January 2020, the company Honeysuckle Health has two parent companies who are both health insurers. They each own 50% of Honeysuckle Health. There's one based in Australia and one based in the US. In Australia, the, the insurer is NIB, which is about the fourth largest health insurer in Australia. So they own 50% of Honeysuckle Health. And the, we have a few people on the, on the executive team who have come from NIB. And for example, my boss, the CEO, he was at NIB for 14, over almost 15 years. And for the last seven years, he ran the biggest division in NIB which is the Australian residents' health insurance business. So that's the majority of their book, the biggest part, and he ran that for, for seven years. And then the, the other organization is Cigna, which is a, a global health insurers health insurer based in the US. They are massive. So for example, in Asia and in Europe and in Americas, they're they're massive. In the US, they're about the also about the fourth largest health insurer and they're global. And uh, I was like to mention that for scale, for example, Cigna has about 1,500 people working in data analytics and data science. Like 1,500 is amazing. And then they have an additional about 1,000 people working in data engineering. The, the companies are massive and, and a powerhouse. So we got both of these companies came together largely through the efforts of my boss now and uh, the CEO of NIB, Mark Fitzgibbon, that they initially came up with the idea of having a, a data science company in the Australian healthcare space and then wanted to find a partner that could help them speed up their learnings and their progress. And then they went to the US and they met with uh, five or six of the largest health insurers and NIB already had a bit of a relationship with Cigna, and but they still met with kind of like all the major health insurers and there was like different levels of eagerness to move forward. And Cigna was like, yep, that sounds great. Let's do it. Let's, let's move. And it was literally like, from my understanding, this was before my time, but from my understanding, it was like about a year from first conversation to Honeysuckle Health being formed. So that meant that in, in 2019, essentially, the conversation, the contracts, the agreements, the payment, and everything happened, which I thought was super fast, <laughs> essentially. And yeah, and then the company launched in Honeysuckle Health launched in January 2020. I'd had sort of my interviews and everything before that, but then I joined in Feb 2020. And it's been, yeah, awesome, awesome so far. And yeah, and so we're working with, with insurers and with uh, hospitals and doctor groups and 
a little bit of with government and, and we see government as an area of growth for us. We think we can add a lot of value to. So we've established that you have firepower there to do the long game and to play the long game and you need to do that. And so Felipe, I'm interested in what is this long game as in where do you actually think that we are going to be using data to improve healthcare and our general health in society? So this is more of a societal question, I suppose. Uh, honeysuckle is a, a big part of that, but where are we going to be using data to improve health across society in, in the next sort of 10 years or so? I love it. Thanks for that question. One of the things that I'm really passionate about is called patient-reported outcome measures. Been, it's been widely used in, in other parts of the world. And one of the examples that I came across from Europe, actually, was around prostate cancer and prostate surgeries. And then through this example, you can see the differences in capturing and tracking the right data, analyzing it and feeding it back to the system, and then opening it up and what, what the benefits of that can have. So I'll spend a couple of minutes sharing this story. I mean, most cancer surgeries, the data that is tracked is something that you can capture from, from a clinician's perspective and it's easy to, to capture and it's around mortality. It's kind of like the, the main thing. So five years after somebody had a surgery for cancer, what is the survival rate or the mortality rate for that cohort? And most hospitals around the world have, have spent a lot of time improving their, their techniques and in their treatments in order to increase that survival rate over time and measuring it at the five-year mark is, is one of the key components there. That is largely done and that improvement is, is there. That's tracked. What's not tracked is these patient-reported outcome measures. So they have to come from the patient about how they're doing after the surgery. In this case of prostate cancer and then prostate surgery, what you ask the patient, because the, these outcome measures are very specific to the procedure that they had done. So in this case, you ask them whether at one year after the surgery, whether they're experienced incontinence and or erectile dysfunction. So these are things that are super personal, kind of like quite like a little bit embarrassing to talk about and not something that can be measured clinically without that sort of personal engagement from the patient. So you have to ask them. And they, a few years ago, there was a, a clinic in, in Germany that started measuring these patient-reported outcome measures for prostate cancer. And they found that they had a much larger than expected, at the beginning as a baseline, they had a much larger than expected proportion of men having incontinence and erectile dysfunction at the one-year mark after the surgery. So then they fed that back to the surgeons and to the doctors, the practitioners, and then they started working on ways so that they could improve that so that less people would have those complications a year out. And then over time, they brought it lower and lower and lower and lower. And then today, when you compare it with overall rates for Europe in general, this is a clinic in Germany, but when you compare it to the overall rates with Europe in general, as of two or three years ago, they were about 10 times better when it came to the having those, those complications a year after surgery. So what I love about the, the power of patient-reported outcomes and being able to feed that back to the system and improve things is that for everyone, if you have a family member that gets a, a condition where they need serious treatment, you would like that family member to get the best possible care and you would like to know 
the types of outcomes that other people have received from the practitioners that your family member is about to, to see. And then within that, as I was saying, traditionally it's mortality rate, but there's other more personal metrics that can and, and should be captured and that they will give us a lot better certainty on who should be seeing us at, and our family members at different points in time. So by doing this across the healthcare industry, and as you were saying, it's definitely a long game. We will hopefully help people answer the question of who should my mom see for her knee reconstruction, right? Or like who should my dad see for his prostate surgery or your wife? Like who should your wife see for uh, breast cancer surgery? Like things like that, that is like so important, so emotionally charged. You want to have, oh, maybe I'm biased, but I'm hoping that most people want to have the evidence the right there at their fingertips, not only the, the patients, but the clinicians as well to be tracking and analyzing and feeding back the right information so we can all improve together as an industry and then we can be offering better and better services over time. And that's something that we're super passionate about. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. I've reflected a bit on, as I've engaged with different healthcare systems over the last years, how everything is research-based, evidence-based in its, its uh, creation, but the application of healthcare is not very scientific at all, to be honest. Everyone gets some doses of medication, you know, in 25 milligram increments or whatever it might be, because that's what the packet says. And that's what we do. It's not individualized. Everyone gets a hospital bed in a certain way, because that's the system that you're going into rather than the system adapting to who you are and, and what you're there for. Joining a queue of others, people who, who are in this, on this conveyor belt of a, a hospital system or, or whatever it is, to be put through the, the sausage machine, and the professionals in there, nurses and doctors and so on, are, are trying to make it work, but they're sometimes a prisoner in that system themselves. So there's so much you can do with personalization that is not picking out darker marks on an X-ray and all that stuff that you can use data to inform. A simple one, actually, that came to mind when you were talking is uh, I was speaking to someone who is a, an executive in, in a healthcare insurance company, just like the ones you've described previously. And, and they found that when they introduced care at home so people go home and recover rather than being in hospital but the hospital will send a nurse or other carer to the home to take care of that person uh, recovery is much better satisfaction is much better and general quality of life is much better and it was cheaper so uh, these are examples of uh, personalization that are not sort of super technologically advanced but they do the trick right and they're, they're the things that you got to find in in data by by experimenting and so on I love it. That is a great example. One of the challenges of experimentation in healthcare that I didn't foresee coming into the, the industry is that you obviously want to have uh, a level of experimentation, but the stakes are completely different when you compare to a 
a website design and, and having a, you know, an A-B testing that where you're splitting people, they're coming into the website, you split them, we split them evenly. So for a lot of the, the interventions that either we're, we're creating or, or that we're measuring the effectiveness, we're seeking to measure the effectiveness, we've had to do retrospective control groups and create retrospective control groups. So essentially, well, because of the ethics that if you're, Developing an intervention that can help somebody, but you're saying, I'm not going to offer it to them just to see if they get worse. And then I can validate that my intervention is good. When you get into healthcare, that's kind of like a little bit tricky, <laughs> a little bit iffy. So um, yeah, the approach that we've done is like, if we're estimating that it benefits, then let's give people the option either directly to them or through the clinician, but let's give them the, the option, make them aware and then give them the option to opt in. And then get a, we get treat our treatment people that way. But then to create a control groups, we look historically and mostly in, in recent years, we look for people that match the treatment once from a data perspective as closely as possible. And obviously there's limitations there because of the data visibility and access. But when you're looking across about a couple hundred variables, it does get to a point that is quite fine-grained. And obviously, you need uh, quite a a large number of people to do that. So we're we're lucky to have over a million uh, individuals in, in our database with a bit of history there. And we've been able to find control groups or control people to match our treatment people with. And then we can look at their health over time and estimate and measure the differences between the the people that would have needed the treatment, but the treatment wasn't available at the time, and the people that did get the treatment, what are the differences in their health over time? And and with that, uh, we've been able to quantify the, the benefits of interventions in healthcare. One of the interesting things there is that we've had of treatment people that got matched to a number of controls, that there's many similar people like them, sometimes 20 people, sometimes 100 people. And then we get to sort of average out uh, the results. That was one of the ways that we did it. Sometimes we did like random matching. So a few different ways, but it's been, been an interesting challenge measuring the effectiveness of interventions in healthcare. And it's something that the, the team works really hard on to create kind of like a framework that is reproducible and can be applied to different interventions. Um, and that re- creates this retrospective control group to do the comparisons and then get a quantifiable figure. And then we expand it from the financial side to look at loyalty and retention, to look at the outcomes, the, the clinical outcomes, and a bunch of uh, experience. So NPS and a bunch of other metrics to kind of like round up the whole benefit measurement. And then we look at which part of the benefit it goes to different providers and organizations that are in the mix. And in Australia, a lot of it by design goes back to the government, which is really, really interesting in terms of the the savings, if you want, from having healthier people. A part of it goes to the insurer. Obviously, the individual gets the main benefit and some of it goes to the insurer and the majority goes to the government, which is, yeah, excellent. Nice. If I take this conversation one level up, what we are talking about really to a large extent is a debate around model centricity versus data centricity to to an extent. So for listeners, what what that means is uh, the last, say, 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of advancements in the types of models we can do, AI models, machine learning models, and the techniques then, and they are all very good and easy to spin up if you have the right 
Python package and so on. And it's available to everyone open source for free. So there's an argument out there by people who are much wiser than me that that's actually not what we should be solving. We should be solving for the next problem, the bigger problem, which is we often actually don't have to write data to make predictions that are accurate, reliable, ethically correct and explainable, and which is basically what you're describing here. You have to go and create the data. It's not a technology problem. It's a data creation problem. And the other thing is it really screams here that data science is not about just the science of using data. It's so much more. This whole organization of all these people with different priorities in different businesses and different systems is a way bigger task than actually finding insights in the data. And that's what you're going to spend <laughs> some years <laughs> lining up the data set. So it's a really fascinating example of what we can do, but the effort that is required to actually do that is massive. Yeah, mate, thank you. Wish us luck. <laughs> yeah, I, I do do that. <laughs> we'll keep trying. Look, Philippe, I think we're towards the end here. It's been a blast. It's been such a blast that we had to do it over two episodes. And listeners, I've talked about before the, the book I've co-authored, the Demystifying AI for the Enterprise. And we were very lucky to have Felipe contribute a case study to that book, which is a brilliant case study from his time in banking. And I learned a lot from that case study myself. If you're interested in that, you can check that out by the book. And Felipe, other than that, any parting words to the audience? Oh, mate, I have to encourage people to get the book. It's fantastic. And I've got a lot from going through the book, working through it, and also getting an opportunity to contribute was phenomenal. I remember my wife's cousin got married in Lord Howe Island, which is off the coast of New South Wales in Australia. Tiny, beautiful island. Well, while we were there, I was writing and finishing the case study, and it has like beautiful memories of like being with family, being in a, such a, a beautiful, beautiful location, and then being able to contribute a, a really small part to an amazing project that you guys spent so much love and blood and sweat and tears into it. And it came out phenomenally. So yeah, for anyone and everyone who's listening, please check out the book. It is outstanding. I didn't know that story, Felipe. I was imagining you sitting in a dark office somewhere, but you're actually sitting on a beach looking out at the beautiful skyline. So that's good. Yeah, beautiful mountains at the beach. It was amazing. That must be why it reads like poetry. <laughs> Felipe, thank you so much for being on Leaders of Analytics again. All the best with your long game. And we look forward to following success of it and feeling it in our personal healthcare around the world. Thank you so much and all the best. Amazing. Thank you so much, mate.